Hello, welcome to Extra Virgin, a podcast for gourmands who love to travel and travellers who love good food. I'm your host, Natasha Mirosh, an insatiably curious food and travel writer who's toured and tasted her way around more than 60 countries. Join me now as I talk to the people who make travelling and eating such a delicious adventure. Hey there, and thank you for joining me for another episode of Extra Virgin Food and Travel. Today I'm going to do something that I don't do very often, which is to be my own guest and talk about my own travels. I'm going to tell you about a trip that I've just done to South America, and I feel so fortunate to be able to talk to you because everybody else is sick and tired of hearing about it, because I absolutely loved it. It was for three weeks, and we left on the 8th of September, which was coincidentally my and my husband's 10th wedding anniversary. We flew to Santiago in Chile, which we'd both been to before. We were only spending a short time there this time, but we did manage to go to the Museum of Memory and Human Rights, which we hadn't been to on our previous visit. It is absolutely compelling. Completely coincidentally, it was the anniversary the following day of the 50th year of the coup d'etat in which Allende's socialist government had been ousted by the military and Augustus Pinochet came to power and he stayed there until the 80s, which was, of course, a terrible time in the history of Chile. And in this lead up to marking the coup, there was a huge choir outside made up of all different choirs from different parts of Santiago and they were singing about peace and unity although we couldn't understand the Spanish, but it was really lovely. Everyone sitting on the steps watching and listening and in some cases singing along. Inside the museum, there are loads of exhibits. There are videos and there are interviews with survivors. There are artworks by people who were imprisoned during that time and lots of other things. It's a great way to understand something of the history of that period in Chile. And I highly recommend it if you get the chance to go to Santiago. We'd also never been to Barrio, and I don't know if this is the right pronunciation. I'm pretty sure it's not, but I'm going to say Yungye, which it's a really colourful part of the city, and it's where the current president lives. Very, very simply, I have to say, it's a it's a suburban neighbourhood. There's lots of street art and cafes, small, interesting streets, really nice to walk around. I also recommend a visit to the Museum of Bow Arts, which was just near where we were staying. It's absolutely beautiful. It houses a collection of South American contemporary art, but even the structure itself is just incredible. It's beautiful. We did a bit of walking around Barrio Lastaria, and I'm sorry, I probably should tell you about barrios. They're basically just the suburbs within Santiago. We did a bit of walking around Barrio Lastaria which we both really like. It's a very buzzy, energetic, young kind of place with lots of restaurants and cafes. And there's a wine bar there called Bocanaritz, which we had been to before. They've got this huge wall of all their wines and you can take a flight of Chilean wines under the guidance of of, uh, sommelier, which is really cool if you don't know a lot about Chilean wines, which I don't. So from Santiago, we flew to the capital of Uruguay, Montevideo. There were a couple of reasons that we decided to go to Uruguay. One is that I like to be a bit different. And the other is that we were using frequent flight to get to Buenos Aires. And we didn't have enough points to get to Buenos Aires, but we did have enough points to get to uh, Montevideo and Uruguay, which is 
probably because it's not as a popular route and it is not far from Buenos Aires. So we decided to go there and then make our own way to Buenos Aires. The third reason is there's a museum there that I really, really wanted to go to, which seems like a crazy reason to go to a country, but there you go. It's called the Andes 1972 Museum, and I'll tell you about it in a minute. I hope you can't hear my dog snoring. I hope that's no indication of what she thinks of this podcast. Anyway, we were staying in the old town in Montevideo. It's a very lovely part of the city with a mix of colonial architecture and pedestrian streets actually the architecture is quite extraordinary it's not really colonial that's probably too it's it's more elaborate they possibly took some influence from Paris as well it's it's really quite extraordinary the mix there it's it's so it's a little bit crumbling we didn't even meet any other English speakers so it definitely is not very touristy it's a great city to walk around we had a fantastic seafood lunch there although everybody there is so focused on beef i think from memory it's one of the largest beef eating nations per capita and they also produce a lot of beef but the seafood is equally good and we had some amazing wines i think next time i would probably spend more time and go out and visit some of the wineries because you just don't see uruguayan wines outside of uruguay i never tasted one before and they were fantastic so we had a lovely few days there we stayed in a place called the fauna hotel it's a very tiny boutique hotel in the old town in one of the pedestrian streets and it's kind of like a mid-century vibe i guess i think the owner is an architect and everything is just so beautifully done a little bit quirky we also had what I think was probably the best food of our South American trip in Montevideo. It has a lot of modern restaurants and not necessarily really heavy food, a bit more interesting. We also had the best coffee that we had anywhere in South America. We found a great little cafe just off Independence Square, which did coffee like we can get back home. And the rest of the trip, the coffee was absolutely dire, which is just meals. <laughs> just such a mystery considering you know you've got brazil and colombia places not so far away that grow coffee so i'm not really sure what's going on there but i had bought my own coffee my own coffee beans actually and a little hand grinder grinder that i travel with so i was covered for emergencies the day after arriving we went to this museum that i'd wanted to go to the 1972 andes museum and The interest in that was inspired actually in the 90s. I had been in Thailand in Kanchanaburi in the north and I was staying on this raft house on the river there. It was sort of like a hostel kind of place and they had a bookshelf where you could leave books and take books and I picked up this book called Alive and I started reading it and I just couldn't put it down. It's the true story of a Uruguayan football team who were travelling to Chile to play a match with one of the top-ranked Chilean teams And they had bad weather, so they were diverted to Mendoza in the north of Argentina, where they stayed the next night. And the next day, the pilots had to make the decision as to whether they continued on. There was a bit of pressure in that this plane was chartered from the Uruguayan military, and there is a law, apparently, that says a military plane could only be on Argentinian soil for 24 hours. So there was that issue to contend with. But whatever it was, the pilots decided they would continue on. Anyway, there was a terrible miscalculation and they ended up crashing into the Andes, still on the Argentinian side of the border, very, very high up. 
There were 45 passengers altogether, including the football team and their family and some supporters and the staff aboard the plane. And some of them died immediately on impact. Others died a little later from their injuries and there was also a terrible avalanche that killed a few more. So in the end, there were 16 survivors and it's winter. They haven't got any proper equipment or even proper shoes. And as the museum owner pointed out to me, they came from Uruguay, which is an extremely flat country. It does not have mountains. So this is a totally unfamiliar kind of environment to these boys and by the way they were boys the average age was 19 they had a small radio that they managed to salvage from the plane so they learnt after eight days that the search had been called off which just must, must have just been such a terrible thing to hear anyway they've got no food and after they hear this news they have to make a terrible decision which is to sustain themselves on the bodies of their dead friends they were going to live Anyway, after 72 days, two of them walked out of that valley. They had to climb up a mountain that was something like 7,000 metres, I think, to get out of this valley, you know, with no proper shoes, no no real warm clothing. It's an incredible story and it just stuck in my head all these years. And I'd read that somebody in Montevideo had started this museum about this story so I went along and yes it was absolutely fascinating there are all kinds of artifacts from the crash and there are interviews with the survivors many of whom still live in Montevideo in fact I think there are 14 of the original 16 survivors still alive the director of this museum is actually friends with many of these survivors and has been since childhood so he really wanted to honor them and he also wanted to acknowledge the person who ended up saving them, who was a, a muleteer who the guys had met when they walked out of the valley. They finally came across him. He was across the river on the Chilean side of the border. And they managed to get his attention and make him understand who they were and what had happened to them. So he helped them. He threw food across the river. And then he rode for 10 hours to go and get help. And eventually a helicopter was dispatched up the mountain to get the survivors down. So there's a statue of him as well. Anyway, it's an incredible museum and just such an amazing story. If you ever get to Montevideo, check it out. So from Montevideo, like I said, Buenos Aires is just across the river. And if you look at a map, it's so close. But the river that separates the two countries is huge. You can't see one side from the other. I think it might, in fact, be the widest river in the world, the River Plate. Certainly when you're on it, it doesn't feel like a river, it feels like a sea. So from the centre of Montevideo, we took a bus to Colonia, which is a port. And actually lots of people make a day trip over from Buenos Aires to Colonia. So it's quite touristy, but we didn't actually see the town. We just went straight to the port. We did get to see a bit of the Uruguayan countryside on the way, which was quite interesting. As I said, very flat. It had been going through drought too, so it was still quite dry. And at the port, we got on a big ship to make the crossing to Buenos Aires, which I think was about two hours. I really, really loved Buenos Aires. I think it's one of those cities that I could easily live in. It's big and bustly with lots to do, but you can still explore on foot. It's got lots of really different, interesting barrios to visit. When we weren't walking around the city, we ended up getting Ubers because they are so cheap in Buenos Aires, certainly compared to where I live. In fact, in general, it was a great value country once you can work out the money situation. 
because I have to tell you, Argentina is one of the most confusing countries I've ever been to when it comes to money. There are basically three exchange rates. You have the exchange rate that you get if you're going to a bank or a bureau de change. There is an exchange rate that you get on what's called the blue market, which is a kind of quasi-legal street exchange thing, which feels really weird to do, but everybody does it. And then since late last year, there's a third rate, which is a credit card rate. So what happens is you pay a higher rate when you buy the goods or services on your credit card, and then the credit card company refunds you something close to the blue rate. Totally bizarre. Things may change, of course, because there has just been a new president elected in Argentina, and he has been charged with sorting out all this mess. My advice in the meantime, though, is probably just pay everything you can with your credit card. One of the things we did in Buenos Aires, of course, was go to a tango show. It's just one of those things you do. But before we did that, I wanted to learn a little bit more about the history behind the tango. There are lots of tours that you can do, but I chose one that I thought would be a little more authentic and it was not in the really colorful touristy kind of barrios it's sort of slightly out of the center a little bit in a barrio called abasto it, it, it was a it was a private tour just the two of us with our guide whose name was catalina and she is an historian and an academic at university and her field of speciality is the history of the tango she lives herself in Abasto, and as far as she's concerned, Abasto is the birthplace of tango. It's not that it was the first place to play the music or dance the dance, but that all of the elements came together in this particular barrio. It was home in the 1800s to a big market, a big produce market, and lots of immigrants came to work at the market, which is still there. It is really an architectural jewel. It's absolutely beautiful. It's been turned into a shopping centre now. And you can see a little bit of the original 1800s iron frame, but it was rebuilt, I think, in the 1930s. So it also has that really gorgeous art deco architecture. Anyway, the market ran 24 hours a day. So everybody kind of worked in shifts and they needed to eat and sleep different hours around the clock. So all of the restaurants and the bars and the pubs in Abasto would stay open to feed them and entertain them. One of the people who lived in Abasto was Carlos Gardel and he's generally agreed to be the the godfather of tango if you like. He was from France but he came to Buenos Aires with his mother and he lived in Abasto and he'd go to these restaurants and sing. We went for a walk around Abasto with Catalina who was um, an amazing guide. She showed us Carlo Gardel's house which is now a museum dedicated to him and the local train station is also called after him and everywhere all over the streets in Abasto you'll see his image painted with his very debonair looking 1930s hat on. She also showed us the restaurants he used to sing at and we talked a lot about the development of tango from uh, a musical form that was just singing until it developed into this dance but According to Catalina, the, t- the tango we think of today was not developed till the 1980. It was when, she says, Argentina realised that it had something tourists were interested in, but they needed to be more accessible. She'll also take you to a malonga, which is a kind of informal dance space where you can learn how to tango if you want to. But having two left feet, I did not want to do that. We did ask, however, for her to recommend a tango show. Now, I knew it was going to be pretty touristy, but it's just one of those things that I think that you you have to do, like going to see the Eiffel Tower, for example. So she recommended one. She did say to us, 
she used to say that, that you shouldn't bother, but she said she thought this one was pretty good. It was very small. So we went along to the tango show that night and actually it was pretty good. It showed you through dance, tango through the ages, how it started and how it developed. And surprisingly for something like that, the food was actually pretty good as well. We also, of course, went to the Pink Palace, which is the seat of the government and where Eva Perón gave her famous speech to the people of Argentina. It's got a big square out the front with a huge Argentinian flag flying in the middle of it. And if you go on a Thursday, the grandmothers of the people who disappeared during the the terrible times of Pinochet walk around the square and they'll talk to you about what went on during that time when so many political dissidents and anyone who was believed to be against the government associated with socialism were made to disappear and their bodies have never been found. At the end of the square, there's like a Spanish colonial building. It's the last remaining one in the city. It's it's white. You can't... You, won't fail to see. If you climb to the top of this, you can go out onto the terrace and you get this incredible view looking towards the palace and the square and exactly where Eva Perón made that last speech. We also went to visit her at her grave at Recoleta Cemetery. Seems like a strange kind of thing to do to go and visit a cemetery. The money spent on the dead. Oh my God, it's hard to believe how much money there must have been in Buenos Aires and still is when you look at the cost of these incredible marble mausoleums that have been built for family members. Some of them, you know, are like the size of small houses and they're marble and gilded and just absolutely incredible. There's also this bookshop that you should go to in Buenos Aires. There's not many English books, but it's worth it to go there just to have a look. It's called El Ateneo Grand Splendid, and I probably mispronounced that too, but it's it's a bookshop that's built in an old theatre. It really is grand and splendid. We also did another walking tour, this time of La Boca. La Boca is a district along the river, and you probably will have seen it in photographs of Buenos Aires because it's very colourful. The buildings are painted in bright primary colours. It's also home to a very famous football club, the headquarters of La Boca Junior which I knew nothing about, I had to confess, but we did learn a little bit about them then. It's a really interesting area. Again, it was where mainly immigrants first settled and apparently Italian immigrants, they're the biggest nationality of immigrants in Argentina. We learned a lot about the history, not just of that barrio, but Buenos Aires in general. And of course, it's a great place to take photos. Afterwards, we stopped and had lunch after the tour in this garden uh, we were kind of drawn in by the smell of barbecuing meat which happens a lot in Argentina and walked into this beautiful garden so we sat and had cocktails in the sunshine and then ordered of course lots and lots of meat so yeah that was really lovely. From Buenos Aires we flew to El Calafate which is in the south in Patagonia. We have been to Patagonia before but from the other side on the Chilean side. So which do I like better? Ooh, tough question, but I think maybe the Argentinian side now. Anyway, El Calafate was a very small, very pleasant town. It was very cold. We knew it was going to be cold, but yeah, it was very cold, but beautifully sunny. I'd almost changed our travel plans and decided not to go to Patagonia because everything I read said in September it can be cold it can be gray it can be really windy it can be misty so you can't see anything but I'm so glad we went because it was just perfect we stayed in a nice hotel there up on the hill and ate a lot of course during the first few days the Patagonian lamb 
there. It's just delicious. And down in the village, there are restaurants that have these glass fronts and they'll just have like a whole flayed lamb going around on a gigantic spit in the front window, which excited my husband beyond belief. One of the reasons that we were in Calafate was to go to El Perito Moreno Glacier. So we did that one day. We had a car which we'd picked up at the airport. And even just driving out of El Calafate, it's breathtakingly beautiful and we drove to the glacier most people do it in tour buses so we didn't really see too many other cars doing it themselves but it didn't really seem like a difficult thing to do so we weren't particularly concerned and to get there you're driving past these glacial lakes and snow top mountains and the sun sparkling on the snow and there's trees and birds and and as you climb up, there starts to be a little bit more snow and it's just beautiful. There's a big car park at the top and you get out. And there are these wooden walkways that curve all around the glacier and you can just get out and walk around. I believe it's the most accessible glacier in the world. And it's so awesome. And I mean that in the old fashioned sense that it just fills you with awe. From a distance, you really have no perspective of it until you get up close and it's just this towering block of ice that have these crevasses it's ridiculously huge and that incredible blue water in the bay was perfectly calm we even saw some kayakers who were going across the bay right up to the glacier i don't know if i'd like to do that myself we did see some films about when part of the glacier collapsed into the water so it's pretty scary it's actually supposedly the only glacier in the world that's not retreating so that was interesting it was unbelievably beautiful, very, very cold, but dry and sunny and just yeah, mind-blowingly gorgeous. On the way back to El Calafate, we stopped at the Glacerium. It's a glacier museum on a bit of rocky hillside. This very modern looking building surrounded by nothing else. It's, it's quite scientific in its approach and its exploration of glaciers and what they are and how they form and just about anything that you've ever wanted to know about glaciers it's probably a good idea actually to go there on the way to see the glacier in fact anyway downstairs they have a bar so you pay a little extra on your ticket it wasn't very much though i think it was like you know the price of a drink or something and you go downstairs and you're given these kind of big heavy capes to put on and gloves and you go into this bar which is minus 15 celsius the floor is made of ice there's an igloo in there the actual bar is made out of ice even in fact the glasses are made out of ice and it's really fun and you get two drinks for that price and one of them uh, you can try the local liqueur made from calafate which is the name of the berry that comes from a bush and has given the name to the town of calafate from el calafate we drove a little bit north to el chalten Shelton's basically a hiking town. I don't know if you could even call it a town. It's so small. It's more like a village. But it's along this border region near Chile and it's disputed territory. If you have a look at a map, that little bit of Chile and Argentina, the border just sort of disappears, the little dotted line of the border, because, you know, it's mountainous and no one's really sure who owns what. But Argentina apparently built El Chalten there as in a way to put their footprint there on the region. The most famous mountains there and the reason that most people come is Fitzroy. So Fitzroy is the jagged sort of peaks, you know, when people talk about Patagonia, for example, the Patagonia Clothing Company use it as their symbol. You'd know it immediately if you saw it. 
the drive between El Calafate and El Chalten is is pretty beautiful. We saw maybe two or three cars the whole time, most of them coming the other way. Just before you get into town, there's a sort of military stop where you show, have to show your passport. I'm not really sure what it's about, but and you have to do that before you go into town. The town's only a few streets and just about everything revolves around hiking. Before we got to the town, I kept saying to my husband, oh my God, you have to stop. I've got to take a photo. Have a look at Fitzroy. Because again, it was a beautiful sunny day and the mountain was just incredible. So we're driving down the, the road and we could literally stop in the middle of the road because there was no one around to take a photo of these jagged peaks. And of course, we just kept getting closer and closer to it and probably as a result have a million photos of Fitzroy now. The same with Guancos, and I'm not sure how to pronounce those either, but they're a kind of llama. And I got super excited when I saw them the first time and made my husband come to a screeching halt so I could take a photo. And then there were literally hundreds of them all over the place down the road. So we're not hikers. I mean, neither of us are the fittest people in the world and we both have knee problems and whatever, but I was determined that we were going to go for at least one short hike. You literally drive down to the end or walk down to the end of the, the main road in town to get to the hiking trail. What I really liked was because we were there out of season, the trekking season hadn't officially started yet. It apparently starts on the 21st of September. It was very quiet. Quite a few of the hotels in town weren't even open and many of the restaurants. We were actually really lucky that the place we were staying at was already open. The first day we did just a very short trek. I think it was just four kilometres or something to a waterfall through a bit of forest and there are little frozen waterways on the way and yeah, it's really lovely. Then we decided to do one that was a bit more challenging to get up closer to Fitzroy. So we were going to a place where there was like a small lake and then you have the mountains in the background and I think it was about seven or eight kilometers the beginning was really hard because it's up you just go up and up and up there are a lot of stairs cut into the mountain which reminds me I have to say one thing about Argentina or maybe it's more a reflection on Australia and our tendency to expect to be nannied all the time but there was no one kind of checking up on you the paths weren't that well maintained there was still a fair bit of ice on them the previous day we had actually taken the car and we drove on what looked like a road out of town on the map which in fact was just a basically stone and rock road following this river all the way I think it was about 100 kilometers we were going to walk to another glacier but this one you actually walk up rather than standing on a platform and looking on it and we were going to perhaps to go to the lake maybe go around the lake by boat but when we got there, we were told that the boats weren't yet operating. So we decided to do this walk up to the glacier. It's on private land, so you have to pay an entry fee, which we did and set off through this lovely forest to start with. It's it's quite flat, and then there starts to be a bit of snow as you start climbing up a bit. The snow quickly turns to ice, and it became very, very slippery. I think I'd gone up for about half an hour up and before I started feeling really unsafe we hadn't been told when we bought our ticket that there was still ice and snow on the path it was virtually impossible it was so slippery my husband decided he was going to go on and I decided that I was not so I found a lovely rock in the sunshine in the forest and I sat and ate my lunch while I waited for him to return 
it was slightly creepy because there were no sounds around whatsoever. And I thought I would be able to hear him as he climbed upwards, but I couldn't hear anything. There was not a bird, not a whisper of breeze, nothing, as I ate my sandwich, wondering if I was ever going to see him again. And then some people came walking up the path towards me, or actually they weren't walking. They were slipping around, grabbing hold of each other and trees, like us, not at all prepared. And they stopped and we had a bit of a conversation in Spanish where I managed, mainly through sign language, to tell them that I thought they probably should have crampons and maybe even walking poles because it was quite difficult. But they decided to continue they didn't get very far past me before they realised it just got worse and so they turned around and came back. Some other people did come past me eventually. They did have cleats on, they did have sticks and they continued on. Eventually my husband came back pretty much slipping and sliding on his bum to where I was and he told me that he'd had a pretty hard time of it and he was very regretful. He'd fallen over quite a few times and his tailbone was pretty sore. He had some spectacular bruises after that. So on the way back, we followed the same path past the river. It's a glacial river, so it sort of carves out this big, wide kind of path. Very rocky and arid, but sort of weird because there are things like flamingos in the water. And you see these condors flying on the on the updrafts of the wind. I'll post some photos on the website so you can have a look because it's hard to find words for it. I can't just keep saying, so beautiful, so beautiful. I have so many photographs, it's ridiculous. Anyway, we get back to town and we go to this one place that weirdly is open 24 hours a day and have frozen margaritas. I don't know why, it just seemed like an appropriate thing to drink. So we had our frozen margaritas and we met a lovely French couple who ended up that they were staying in our hotel Uh, they're not being all that much choice in town actually it's a pretty fair chance anyway we had a lovely time with them we went out to dinner that night and the next day we set off for this bigger walk uh, up towards Fitzroy a little bit more prepared this time I think because of the way the mountain faced there wasn't there wasn't much snow just a little bit in the in the forest uh, but no ice so it was very manageable Like I said, it was really steep the first bit and I was huffing and puffing and carrying on. Probably the first 45 minutes to an hour, it was just up. But again, perfect weather, so we're crossing little streams of snow melt and a bit of rockfall and some scrambling and bits. The path branches off at one stage and you have to make the decision as to which way you're going. We were going to a lagoon, so we continued on with that walk. And you reach the top and you're overlooking this small glacial lake and the mountain range in the background. It feels so close. It actually feels like a film set. It's so unbelievably gorgeous. So then we drove back to El Calafate where we flew from there back to Buenos Aires for the night because annoyingly, except I guess maybe in high tourist season, all the flights go back to Buenos Aires and connect on. So we stayed the night in a hotel not far from the smaller airport we were where we were leaving from the next day. So the next day we flew to Mendoza, which is in the northwest of Argentina, not far from the Chilean border. In fact, we were following the same route that the air crash survivors from the Andes 1972 museum had followed and looking down and seeing what they were faced with, it just brought it all home what an incredible story of survival it was. So even though it's not very far from the Chilean border, the Andes separating the two 
countries. It's not like you can just hop across to Santiago, even though geographically it's quite close as the crow flies. So we were not actually staying in Mendoza, but about an hour and a half outside of the city. But we did drive into Mendoza and we stopped for lunch at their central markets. It was a Saturday morning and the traffic was nuts and there's lots and lots of one-way streets. Mendoza wasn't what I was expecting. I thought it was going to be like some kind of colonial Spanish town, but it was big sprawling kind of city and reminded me of somewhere in Mexico rather than anywhere we'd been in the rest of the country. Sort of chaotic, colourful, crowded. We drove around and my husband was getting more and more stressed about where we were going to park until eventually we found this little parking station with a very friendly guy who'll look after your car for you. And it was cheap as well. So we went to the markets and we wandered around. They're very kind of authentic, you know, big legs of jamón and breads and cheeses. And I didn't actually see any tourists there apart from us. I mean, not recognisable tourists anyway. We sat up at these stools at this stall where they were just liking slices of pizza and you had this gigantic beer mug and we had these incomprehensible chats with the elderly owner who was very friendly and we managed to get by in sign language again. After lunch, we drove to our accommodation, which was to the west, closer to the Chilean border. In fact, there used to be a railway line that connected Mendoza right across the border to Chile and you can still see remnants when you drive. You can see the tunnels and where the old rail line went and old railway bridges. Sadly, it was abandoned in the 19 and Argentina figured that it wasn't worth replacing. So it's now mainly trucks on the road rather than uh, goods being transported by train. We were staying at some geodesic domes that I'd found on the internet that I thought looked really cool. And they were outside this kind of nothing little town. So you drive through this property, it's like a farm, and they're growing alfalfa and all the fields were just covered in these tiny little yellow flowers. And they had their own beech wood. It's all very kind of sustainable and laid back and cool. You know, the owner's dogs running around, a couple of cats. And the domes are just so perfectly situated. They're built onto these wooden platforms overlooking this bluff and they face the Andes. So you can lie in bed and you can pull the curtains and just lie there and look out at the Andes. Um, Particularly at night, the sky is so clear and so many stars and the mountains in the background. It's just incredible. And then immediately in front of you, you've got all this pampas grass and some foothills as well. And all you can hear is the sound of the birds. There's a little stream that runs outside, outside the domes, that is is quite lovely to go to sleep to. And there's a dining dome there where you can have dinner and they will also bring breakfast to you in a basket every morning. And on your deck, you've got sun lounges so you can just lie there and look at the mountains or there are a couple of hammocks strung up in the trees outside, or there's a few more in the forest if you want to go hang out in the forest. It was the most perfect relaxing finish to our holiday because there wasn't a lot of big things to tick off. We did end up going to some wineries which were back towards Mendoza, and they were fantastic. Generally, you have to pay for a tasting, and most of them have restaurants which... Yeah, serve incredible food. My husband was driving, unfortunately, but I had a flight of wines with my lunch and I chose the sommelier's choice because I thought it'd be interesting to see which wines he would choose for me. And I don't think I've had a more generous wine tasting in my life and I don't think I've ever left glasses of wine before. 
there were so many glasses of wine and there were huge pours. So really good fun, fantastic wine. And I wish we could have brought more home with us, that's for sure. We also did a bit of a drive to a nearby lake and there's actually a, a hot springs town um, that are built over the river. The pools are built out of river stone and you can go and soak away in those. They were established, I think, in the last century. We hadn't bought our swimming costumes, unfortunately. It was not something we'd thought about doing in early spring in a cold country. One thing that we did that I really loved doing at the domes was going on a horse ride. And so there's this local gaucho, Elvio, who pretty much lives next door to the domes. He's something like seventh generation gaucho. He's never left the region of Mendoza, he told me, or at least I think he told me, we didn't share a common language, but we did manage to get by. So Elvio bought two of his horses for us. He kind of gave us a stump and showed us how to get on. No, no helmets or anything like that. No idea where we were going. He basically instructed us by showing us how to make the horse turn right, left and stop and we were off. We rode down to the river and we crossed the river which is quite shallow but fast and rocky, then onto the grasslands and started going uphill to a small kind of mountain in front of the domes. The horses were great and we just trusted that they knew what they had to do because as you ascend, there's a lot of scree up there. It can be quite slippery and yeah, you just have to trust your horse when you're going up that it has sure footing. But they were very good horses. It was, it was really an otherworldly experience being out there, just the three of us in this totally wild place. You, apart from the domes in the background, you can't see any human habitation, just the mountains. There are condors and other birds um, flying above you. And we just followed Elvio. I haven't been on a horse for maybe 25 years and I don't think my husband had ever been on one. So as we were returning, I felt a little frustrated, I think, because my horse was slow and I was gaining more confidence as I had remembered how to ride. Argentinian saddles, I don't know if you, I don't know if any of you know this, but Argentinian saddles are very different from what I'm used to. They have this kind of metal thing made out of silver and this lots of this sheepskin padding and the stirrups are really far forward much more forward than I'm used to but it makes for a really comfortable ride so I just sort of pressed my horse a little bit and asked him to go for a bit of a jog which he did unfortunately my husband's horse saw this and decided he was going to follow and my husband was totally unprepared for that his feet fell out of the stirrups and his horse took off and he was holding on for dear life kind of screaming as his horse took off after mine to his credit, he managed to stay on, but the bruises on his bum that joined up with the bruises from falling over on the glacier was not a pretty sight. He was a bit sore and sorry for himself. Anyway, from Mendoza, we flew back to Santiago and spent a night in Santiago, and we stayed in a really lovely boutique hotel there called The Singular. I'd eyed off The Singular on our last visit, so I was pretty excited to stay there this time. It's got a fantastic roof terrace that overlooks, I think it's called the Sanochia Hill and you can get a great view of the whole of Santiago from up there and the restaurant's very good. It seems like local people go there to eat and drink as well. It wasn't just people staying in the hotel. And we also went to the spa downstairs. We kind of figured we had a long journey home so we tried to get in as good shape as we could for sitting all those hours on a plane. 
So we had a sauna and a really, really good massage. So that was the end of our wonderful holiday. It couldn't have gone better. I planned everything myself and, you know, I'm pretty proud that nothing went wrong. I booked as much as I could in advance, like the boat tickets and all our accommodation and everything. So I knew what we were doing. And I did a fair bit of research because I like staying in nice places. I think this holiday has probably risen to the top of my best holidays ever now. Number one, pole position. So that was my trip to South America. I have a couple more stories that I'm waiting to be published. And after that, I'll put some more stuff on the website about the exact places that I stayed and some recommendations. I hope I haven't bored you too much. I know it's been a bit like a a modern iteration of a a holiday slideshow. So thank you, as always, for keeping me company. And wherever you are in the world, bon voyage and bon appétit. You've been listening to Extra Virgin, a podcast for the Epicurious. If you'd like to be part of the conversation, you can follow Extra Virgin Food and Travel on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. If you haven't already, go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts and subscribe, rate and leave a review. And if you'd like to help support Extra Virgin and keep us ad free, please consider buying us a virtual coffee on the website www.extravirginfoodandtravel.com.